Pilate then took Jesus and had him scourged. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and gave him slaps to his face. So we have two contradictory images here. A crown, which is a universal symbol of royalty in the ancient world, and thorns, a symbol of cursing and desolation throughout the scriptures. So why was Jesus made to wear such a thing? Thorns were not produced on day three of creation along with the rest of the plants. They appear only after the fall. In response to Adam's sin in the garden, God cursed the ground with these words from Genesis 3. In painful toil you will eat from it, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And from that point forward, wherever God's blessing is withdrawn, you will find an abundance of thorns. But if that's true, why was Jesus made to wear such a cursed crown? And the only explanation is love. In love, the triune God decreed that the story of thorns would be brought to an end by way of a cross. God the Son, the true King of kings, veiled in human flesh, wore a crown of thorns, the crown that we deserve, and suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. And in so doing, he brought the reign of thorns to an end. He rescued us from sin's curse and transferred us into the kingdom of light, a place where thorns will never, ever grow again. And because of his great love with which he loved us, we will forever see Jesus crowned not with thorns, but with glory and honor because he was willing to taste death for us and to suffer in our place. Friends, that is the big picture of Good Friday. But first, the work had to be accomplished. So let's go back in our minds to Jerusalem, to the palace where Pontius Pilate rules and where he judges from his praetorium. Remember, this is Satan's hour, his supposed hour of triumph. It had been prophesied all the way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, the hour of darkness where the serpent would be given permission to bruise the Savior on the heel. John says Pilate brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement. In Hebrew, Gabbatha. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And now we come to John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. So Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So it's around 8 o'clock in the morning now, and Jesus has already endured hours and hours of interrogation, both from the Jewish authorities and from the Roman authorities. But now, at this point in the story, Pilate makes the judgment official, Jesus will die. Not for blasphemy, as the chief priests had desired, but as an enemy of Rome because he claimed to be a king. So he's handed over to this imperial guard stationed there at the Praetorium, the unit that's been assigned to executions. And over the next hour, Jesus will endure the most severe form of torture and scourging the Roman legal system had to offer. The wounds he would have suffered are difficult to speak of. Deep contusions, ribbons of torn flesh, massive loss of blood, hyperventilation, circulatory shock. 
And having already suffered one flogging earlier that morning and then being denied sleep all that night because of the trials, you can imagine that when Jesus was finally released from the post, he could barely stand on his own. And so the soldiers steady him and they force a heavy crossbar onto his shoulders and they push him forward. Verse 17, they took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. This was standard Roman practice to have the condemned man carry the instrument of his own death on his back. Struggling and stumbling all the way to the place where he will die, it adds to the humiliation of the prisoner and gives the soldiers another chance to entertain their cruelty. They're headed towards a specific place just outside the wall on the western side of the city to a unique rock formation which locals have recognized for generations that it looks like a skull and therefore it's called Golgotha. It was a place where upright posts had become permanent ghoulish fixtures for Rome to use whenever crucifixion became necessary. And as they continue towards this place, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report an unusual development. It's apparent that Jesus is not physically going to be able to make it all the way there. As strong a man as he must have been, the lack of sleep and now two beatings had taken a toll on his body. And as he struggled, the impatient soldiers grab hold of a man who had just arrived in Jerusalem from the country. His name is Simon. He's from a place called Cyrene, which is an ancient city in North Africa. We're not given any more details about him. He's one of these characters that comes and goes in the narrative, but we can guess that he was a a Hellenistic Jew who was there to observe the Passover. It seems the soldiers randomly picked him. It's possible that he just looked like the strongest man out there among the crowd along the Western Wall, and so the Roman guards press him into service. You can imagine how terrifying that would have been for him. Simon will follow the beaten and bleeding prisoner up to the execution site, hauling his crossbar on his shoulders, allowing Jesus to finish the march towards his death. Behind them are the conspirators. Matthew names them. The chief priests, along with the scribes and the elders, they're there to make sure the deed gets done. And when this growing entourage arrives at Golgotha, my guess is that Simon dropped that crossbar as fast as he could and left. And if so, I don't blame him. The soldiers would have then forced Jesus down on his back on top of the crossbar. As large iron nails were expertly driven into his hands, the pain must have been excruciating. And so Matthew tells us that someone on the execution team offered Jesus a drink. But after putting it to his lips and realizing that it was wine mixed with gall, which was an ancient sedative in that day designed to dull the pain, Matthew says that Jesus refused it. Clearly, he intended to drink every drop of the cup of God's wrath and to experience the full weight of our sin. And then in the midst of all the searing pain, Luke tells us that Jesus looked down at those below him and then looked up and he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's a prayer of unsurpassed mercy, spoken on behalf of those who are least deserving of mercy. 
And Isaiah prophesied it 700 years earlier, saying of the Messiah, he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Intercessory prayer from a condemned man. Amazing. And for anyone present that morning whom the Father would draw to himself, it's true, they would be forgiven. Even forgiven for this day, the most heinous crime in all of human history, they could be forgiven. How? By the sacrifice of the very one they are about to hang. And we know that did happen, by the way, right? One of the two thieves and at least one member of the Sanhedrin would indeed come to trust in Jesus as Messiah and be forgiven. How sweet is God's amazing grace that saves wretches, even those who were present at Golgotha on that morning. It's now 9 a.m., what the ancients call the third hour. Verse 18, there at Golgotha they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. So I want you to imagine being nailed to a crossbar, and then with some form of a rope and pulley system being hoisted into the air toward the top of the post. Your shoulders dislocated, your own body weight pulling downward on the flesh and sinew in your hands. Instantly you would try to raise up your chest to breathe, to take the weight off of your hands and your arms. It's likely that the soldier then bent Jesus' knees and drove another nail into his feet to secure them to the cross. So much discomfort, so much agony and more royal blood of God's one and only Son spilling out onto the ground. Crucifixion was a horrifying sight. That was the whole point. It was a method of execution designed to deter future criminals. It was considered so brutal that no Roman citizen could legally be crucified. It was reserved only for slaves and foreigners. A victim could hang there for hours or even days. To keep from suffocating, you would have to pull yourself up with your arms and shoulders over and over and over again. And when your upper body strength had run out, you would have to push up with your legs, tearing the flesh of your feet and ankles each time. And of course, all this would cause terrible muscle spasms and shaking and gasping for air. But if you didn't keep straining, you wouldn't keep breathing. A thousand years before that day, in Psalm 22, David had lamented a feeling encircled by his enemies and forsaken by Yahweh. And it's this psalm, Psalm 22, which serves as the backdrop in the prophecy of what Jesus, the Davidic king, was going through in this moment. I am poured out like water, David wrote. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Crucified on each side of Jesus are two sinners. Luke refers to them as criminals. The others call them thieves or robbers. And Mark makes the important observation that this too is a fulfillment of Scripture, pointing back to Isaiah 53, where it says, He poured himself out to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 19, 
Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So this was standard operating procedure for a Roman crucifixion to make the victim wear a sign around his neck on the way to the execution, a sign that laid out his crime, the charge against him, and then that sign would be nailed to the top of the post for all to read. And we see here that Pilate used this particular sign as one final dig at the Jewish leadership. Behold, this is your king. And in spite of their objections, he will not change it. What I have written, I have written. And the fact that the chief priest protested the verbiage that was on the sign tells you that they felt the sting of this last insult from Rome. By the way, the sign is true, isn't it? He was the king of the Jews and so much more. And the fact that that truth was written in the three primary languages of the day so that everyone could see it and read it and know it, that Jesus Christ is Lord over the entire world, every race, every tribe, every language. Verse 23, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scriptures. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. How sovereign is God that even the details of the linen tunic had been planned. Once again, we see the standard Roman process. This was, in fact, one of the perks of working on the execution unit. The criminal's possessions became your own to either keep or to sell. And as John cites right there in the text, this too was prophesied by David in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, that the outer garments, his clothing, would be gambled for by casting of lots. Matthew and Mark tell us that those passing by him at this point began to hurl abusive words at him. They wagged their heads at him. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. And they mocked him. And we read that the religious leaders present that day felt absolutely no shame whatsoever for this wicked plot that they had unleashed upon this innocent man. These whitewashed tombs were at the foot of the cross mocking him. Luke says that they sneered at him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. They laughed. If this is the Christ, the King of Israel, let him come down, and then we'll believe. Ouch. David, too, felt the sting of this in his day. Again, from Psalm 22, he wrote, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They open wide their mouths against me. And then Luke says that one of the thieves cried out during this time, Are you not the Christ? 
Save yourself and save us. It wasn't an expression of faith or worship. It was pure self-preservation. But the other thief expressed humility and repentance. Do you not fear God? He shouted at the first man. We're receiving what we deserve, but this man has done no wrong. And then he turned his head toward the cross in the middle. And between heavy breaths, he addressed the Lord. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Think about this. This man must have been a despicable character. He was being crucified after all. But in that moment, everything changes. And this is all of our stories, isn't it? This thief bows his heart before the one who saves wretched sinners. This man knows very little of theology. He doesn't have time to be baptized. He'll never give to missions or serve in the church. This thief's faith is as childlike as it gets. And yet the Savior rewards him. In the midst of the agony of being crucified... Jesus looks at him and says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Be amazed. It's now noon. Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours. And the text says, But standing by the cross were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Once again, even in the midst of all of this pain, the Lord is thinking of others, making sure that his earthly mother would be cared for after he's gone, which brings us back to the truth he read way back in John 13. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The gospel writers report that beginning in the sixth hour, an ominous shadow fell upon the land until the ninth hour. Luke testifies, listen now, the sun was obscured. Cosmic signs in the sky. The natural world responding to the unimaginable event that is taking place on the earth. For three hours of darkness, Jesus hangs there, absorbing the wrath of God, the perfect Son of Man, becoming sin for those whom the Father had given him to save. For three hours, he struggles over and over and over again to catch his breath, heaving up and down on the cross so that he might drink the full cup of God's wrath. And at three o'clock, the ninth hour, The synoptic gospel writers say that he suddenly cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't misinterpret this. From a human perspective, was Jesus feeling all of the isolation and all the pain of bearing the weight of sin? Absolutely. Because he's fully human. He feels every bit of it. But did God the Father abandon the Son or turn away from Him? No. No. There can never be a separation in the union between God the Father and God the Son, or else the Godhead would have ceased to be eternally one. 
Notice that Jesus did not cry out, Father, why have you forsaken me? That was his normal way of addressing God. He referred to him as Father in that family term, but not here. Not here. Why? Because once again, he's pointing us back to Psalm 22. In fact, to the very first verse of Psalm 22, where David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus cries out in a loud voice that day at Golgotha so that everyone near the cross would hear and connect his death to David. He is still teaching in his very last moments before he physically dies. Friends, this was not a cry of abandonment. It was not a cry of defeat. It was a statement of his messianic identity to be heard by all. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And for one last time, Jesus is aware of the importance of of dotting every I and crossing every T and fulfilling every scripture And again, he points back to Psalm 22, where David writes, My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. He's thirsty. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Now, this is not the same sedative that was mentioned earlier. This is that typically cheap brand of wine that the Roman soldiers would drink. Verse 30, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, and both Matthew and Mark emphasize that he cried out again in a loud voice, it is finished. This was the victory cry. This was mission accomplished. For the joy set before him, Jesus had endured it all, and now the cross served as his way back home, back to the Father, back to the glory that they shared together before the world was made. Luke adds, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The God-man was dead. Take note of that. He gave up his spirit. It was not taken from him. As God, he had the authority to lay down his own life. And the synoptic gospel writers all testify that at that moment, the great veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and tombs broke open. And one of those Roman soldiers, sovereignly chosen for the execution unit that day, looks around at all that's happening after witnessing how Jesus dies and says, surely this man was innocent. Surely this man was the Son of God. A Gentile. Centurion. Verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath... For that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, the normal practice of crucifixion was to leave the bodies up there on the cross for days so that those passing by would observe the horror of it and realize this is what Rome could do to me too. But in a time like this, if the process needs to be sped up, those soldiers would take a massive iron mallet and break the legs of the victims across the knees. 
And as awful as that sounds, it was actually a mercy. Because when the victim could no longer use the strength of his legs to force the body up to breathe, then suffocation would come quickly. Now for the Jews, leaving a body exposed overnight would defile the land according to the law, and it would be doubly offensive if that were to happen during Passover. So, verse 32 says, The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And what John is doing here is emphasizing that Jesus really did, in fact, physically die. And that was important because even in his day, at the end of the first century, people were beginning to say that Jesus wasn't fully human, that he didn't have an actual body, that he didn't die on the cross. And so John says not only was he crucified to death, but he received also a fatal spear jab into his side that would have pierced either his heart or his lungs. And so John adds then in verse 35 a solemn testimony to this fact that Jesus died. He writes, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may what? Believe. So that you also may believe. And then to strengthen the messianic claims of Jesus, John goes on to cite two more Old Testament prophecies. Verse 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And it's true, if you read the Torah, you will see that no bone of the Passover lamb is to be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. And this is a verse from Zechariah 12 that you should know. It connects to Jesus' lineage again through David. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Now we get some very important historical notes here in these last couple of verses. Matthew tells us that Joseph was a rich man from this Judean town of Arimathea. Mark and Luke tell us that he was a prominent member of the council. That means the Sanhedrin that he become a disciple of Jesus and that he was waiting on the kingdom of God and recognized it in Jesus. Wow. That means that God was able to regenerate and save this man in the midst of this den of demons. Folks, God can reach anywhere to save someone, even into the heart of the Sanhedrin. It's likely that Joseph was able to leverage his power on the council to approach Pilate and reasonably ask to take care of his body. And my guess is Pilate gave permission to Joseph, probably realizing once again he never believed Jesus was guilty, never believed Jesus deserved to die. In fact, granting that permission may have been another way for Pilate to try to wash his hands, to assuage the guilt that he felt for putting him on the cross in the first place. Verse 39 says, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, 
also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. We don't know for sure, but this note tells us that Nicodemus may also have been a closet believer of Jesus. He was coming out of the shadows now, or it's possible that he was simply showing respect and care for a man whom he admired, but in the end, he didn't have the strength and the courage to stand up for. We'll find out in heaven, won't we? Now, if Jesus died at three o'clock, that means sundown and the beginning of the Sabbath is not far away, and there's a lot of work to do to prepare his body and to get it into the tomb. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So Matthew tells us this tomb was very near Golgotha, that it had been dug out of a rock there, and it was Joseph's brand new tomb, his, his own new tomb, meaning this was a precious gift. Tombs like this were not easy and not cheap to hew out of the rock. And with the Sabbath upon them, the nearness of that tomb becomes the key to getting his body into the cave. Verse 42. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Can you picture this now? As the skies begin to darken over Jerusalem... The Sabbath is about to begin. This small group of Jesus' friends lay his wrapped body on the bench inside of Joseph's tomb, and together they roll a stone in front of the entrance. And then what? And then what? Did they all look at each other with tears in their eyes and say, What now? All hope seems to be gone. All of their hope is now lying dead behind that stone. What now? Let me end with this. Friends, do you struggle? Do you struggle with thinking that Good Friday is good? Please don't. Because Jesus said it is finished. He said the mission has been accomplished. There is nothing left undone for the securing of our salvation. In his infinite love, God devised a way to be both just and merciful at the same time. Salvation through substitution. He became sin for us and we take hold of his righteousness. And now when God sees you, he can say, I see his blood, I will pass over him. He sees Jesus' blood and he passes over us. For all eternity, we are going to live with awe and gratitude for this day, 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on our behalf. So yes, it is good. It is far more than good. Tonight, we bow our heads with humility and thankfulness, but on Sunday morning, we gather together and we will shout with great joy. 